the Superstructure special series about Plato's Republic. I am once again joined by my friend, colleague, and collaborator, Brendan Cook. Welcome, Brendan. Great to be back. So we de- we've decided in the interim that what was going to be a, a potentially two-part series had to be expanded to a three-part series. I think we're going to stick to this. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can we can talk about where we've been, where we're going to head in this part two, and where we're going to be going in part three. I think it's fair to say that part one was really dedicated to kind of getting everybody up to speed on Plato, on Plato's Republic. What is this text? Where does it come from? What were the kind of political, social circumstances surrounding the tax. What's the purpose of this dialogue? What else did we discuss in in our last episode? Well, I have to say first, Scott, that I could have warned you this was going to happen when you proposed doing Republic. I'm thinking about teaching it in other contexts, and I've realized that in most translations, this is about 130,000 words in length. This is absolutely massive. So, of course, it's going to take us a while to get there. So I would just add that in addition to all of the background stuff, sort of explaining this strange situation where Plato is taking the actual historical personage of his master Socrates, but making him a fictionalized character, sort of playing off and defying people's expectations of Socrates, in addition to our discussing democratic Athens and the environment in which Plato is writing, we still spend a lot of time talking about things actually in this text while progressing basically only through the first two of the ten books. There was still, I think, a lot that we covered in terms of the poetic way that Plato frames it as a bit of a story where Socrates is at first just having his normal encounters with people simply questioning before he's drawn into this greater challenge. He's drawn into a challenge by his more serious students, the brothers of Plato, to really talk about justice in a systematic way. Yeah, and we talked about that working to transition from um, what people will call the, the negative way, the negative way of reasoning, the kind of the elimination of all the bad ideas or the bad justifications or explanations for things that kind of whittles away toward a truth that is ineffable or unspeakable toward something that w- is more like a a positive or what's sometimes called like cataphatic as opposed to an apophatic account of, in this case, uh, the question of justice, which is the, the central question of the dialogue. And yet we've already set up enough to make it clear why some interpreters might feel that Still, Socrates ultimately isn't giving us a positive definition because even though he apparently does, at every stage, Plato as author undermines his characters. And in some ways, Socrates has already undermined himself by his endorsement of lying early on, of telling people what they need to hear rather than telling them the truth. So we're already set up, even though we're going to we're going to hear a positive definition of justice, we've been set up to mistrust it as well. Yeah, and so there's a constant, very sophisticated tension in the text between a, a negative and positive dynamic or a apophatic and cataphatic dynamic, which are all wrapped up in the text 
deep ironies mm-hmm. that have boggled the minds of interpreters and readers and, and teachers and students for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But that said, we have already heard one of my favorite things from the text, because despite all of these caveats, the definition of justice that Socrates gives relatively early on in the scale of this massive work is a very good one. He defines justice within the state, and soon we're going to be talking more about justice within the individual, but justice within the state is the appropriate allocation of duties, the appropriate allocation of care and responsibility. He's defined justice as finding the right job for every single person in the community, everyone focusing on one narrowly conceived task to help the community while the community helps them in return. And I think we emphasize that put in that way, maybe not the narrow specialization part, but we'll, we'll, we'll just mm-hmm. put that to the side. Put in that way, this text is offering us a, an ancient template behind ideas for and struggles for public full employment, a job guarantee today, the Green New Deal, um, and that sort of thing. On the other hand, and so that's something to be lauded, right? On the other hand, the text is not only quite mm-hmm. unstable, as we've been suggesting, but the text in its instability, it's not just generically unstable. It's unstable according to certain logics and contours and problems that keep coming up and repeating because of a kind of deeper set of metaphysical commitments that we presumably Plato and certainly Plato's texts are perpetuating here and elsewhere. And uh, we sort of promised that we were going to get into those metaphysics last time uh, and kept kind of kicking the can down the road and teasing that we, you know, we, were, we would sort of dabble and then, and then move on. Today's episode, mm-hmm. this is part two, we really want to get into these metaphysics. And we want to get into these metaphysics for yes their potentials but also their kind of deep problems and and potential blind spots and we want to do so by looking at really the the central uh, books or chapters or you know sections of this text which are largely dedicated to the uh, education of the guardian class right that's that's the kind of a central um, preoccupation of um, of this book. Like, how do you make these wise, philosophy-loving guardians that are going to rule this uh, supposedly ideal city? And then, so we'll, we're going to take that on today, and we're going to defer until next episode um, a more focused discussion of money and how money is figured in this text, and often in kind of problematic but complicated ways. Yeah, that makes sense. All I would say is that we might bracket, we might talk about money, but we want to bracket the definition of money. I would say that for this episode, we'll trust the translators who inevitably, most modern translators will give us the term money in these places. But I do agree with you that this is, in a way, the perfect place to talk about Plato's metaphysics, to talk about our critique of it, because one of the places where it is most problematic is in the implied critique of democracy. 
There is, I really feel in this text, an implied critique of democracy, which really is relevant as much to modern American democracy as it is to Athenian democracy, in part because it's less to do with the specifics of any form of government than Plato's basic metaphysical assumptions about how political power works. Yeah, and then I think central to this inter- critical interrogation of democracy that is being set up and explored in this book uh, is the way that the text uh, understands and figures questions of social mediation, which includes language and representation and poetry and naming. And these are all the kinds of questions that we're always asking about at Money on the Left, because we we would insist that language and naming and representation and more broadly forms of mediation, whether it's audiovisual media or, you know, I don't know, the circus, right? <laughs> all forms of social activity do and institutions do work of mediation. For us, mediation is constitutive. It's primary. There's no outside of mediation. Mediation comes first, not, you know, some kind of pre-mediated matter or pre-mediated, I don't know, relationship between individuals. That mediation is always a collective process. And what's kind of tricky about Plato's Republic is that if you squint, you could see him agreeing that mediation is a collective mediating project. But because of the ways that he figures mediation and naming and representation in all of its particular paradoxes as as Plato sees it, he ends up getting himself into trouble, at least from our point of view, in ways that we would want to be uh, critical. Yeah, absolutely. If everything you said about mediation, I really feel his response would be, well, yes and no. And to the extent he'd say yes, you'd want to affirm him. But yes, you want to critique all the reasons Plato would say no to what you just said. And so, you know, we've named these metaphysics, these metaphysical commitments. You can you can call them different things, but I think it's helpful to ascribe them the term univocal, speaking in one voice. Um, and as we've discussed on this podcast and I've discussed in my writing, we tend to associate univocal metaphysics with uh, the much later uh, late, late medieval uh, Franciscan tradition and all of the ways in which that Franciscan tradition has influenced modern European uh, continental philosophy and even critical theory and critical thought. The kinds of univocal metaphysics that we find in Plato are certainly related and you could argue are influential in later Franciscan and European theologies and philosophies, but they're different. What we see in Plato isn't isn't exactly what's what the Franciscans uh, would be later up to, and um, what the European Enlightenment philosophers were up to, and what the critical theorists and post-structuralists have been up to. Well, yeah, and the reason what we're going to see here is there are in certain ways, in certain ways, there is a conditional affirmation of mediation in Plato that you don't see in modernity. But on the other hand, what we've already noticed is this tendency to want to reduce the complexity of language to simplicity. There is a tendency to want to take a word 
like honor or justice or piety or goodness and treat it like the word red and say, well, all red things have this thing in common. That's what it is. In an earlier dialogue in the Euthyphro, it was the question of what it meant to honor the gods versus honoring your family or your city. Well, we talk about honoring all these things. There's got to be one definition behind the word. Here now, the whole reason Socrates is launched into the discussion of justice in the city is he says that it's inevitably related to justice in the individual. Yes, there's a funny little quip about how, well, justice is very small. We need to look at it on a big scale in the city to see it. But what's really going on here is this, I think, very serious metaphysical commitment. And I mean, Plato can try to disavow it all he wants, but it appears in dialogue after dialogue to saying, well, we talk about a just person. We talk about a just city. There must be some univocal, one voice, one term that corresponds to all of them one idea of justice that runs through everything. And that's, I think, how we get to the point where we're now at, where Socrates is imagining this just city for his two students so that he can then return to talking about justice in the individual. And this is uh, related to, or this is basically the question of the forms which we were posing last time, right? It's the form is supposed to be a univocal ultimately absolute or stable and pure unmixed shape right uh meaning and what's strange is that he will sort of he'll acknowledge that you you can't ever fully articulate it but he'll nevertheless project a kind of purity outward that that we're always chasing Well, it depends, and it really does depend on the dialogue, whether Plato is deliberately creating ambiguity or, like most people, his ideas are refined over time. I think that Republic gives us one of the most uncompromising and problematic accounts of this. As Socrates talks about how the guardians of his fictional city should be educated, he's always saying they should look past the particulars, look past the messy world of things we can see and touch to these pure eternal forms. And it does really sound like he's saying that all that matters is this unmediated access to this deeper reality. Whereas in other dialogues, like the Symposium and the Fido, there's more of an admission that for all practical intents and purposes, you do need to embrace the sensual immediate world of the particulars. Yes, the forms are out there, but the only way you find them is by actually living life and that this is not really a problem to be solved, that you do have to live in the world of the immediate. So it really does depend on the dialogue, but yeah, you almost you do get the sense in, in Republic that the forms matter in a way that other things don't, that almost seems to devalue the world outside the forms. And even still, there's, even if compared to other dialogues, there is this uh, extreme kind of separation in a sense that, that sensuous multiplicity is some kind of fallen state. Mm-hmm. And that none of that, none of that fleeting stuff matters. Even still, there's, there's tension. Right. There's tension uh, in the way that that's being constructed. And that's where, you know, the meaning of the text really lies. It's in how those tensions and those problems are being articulated. And that's what I think has 
has made Plato's Republic and Plato's other texts so long-lasting in uh, in history is that people, schools, traditions keep finding new ways of inhabiting those tensions and those problems. But I would say that if you want to lay negative consequences at Plato's feet, and there, I think there's another as we'll talk about democracy, we can mention one right here with Republic, because if, you, if you're looking for the source for this sort of idea of a universal reason detached from people's life experience, this is where you would find it. And I'm thinking here of the strand in reactionary modern thought that complains about so-called identity politics. You know, you'll have someone like Sam Harris complain that there's not one reason for men, one reason for women, one reason for people in Africa, one in Asia. There's just one universal reason. I can see why when he does this, Sam Harris thinks that he's speaking in the Platonic tradition. He thinks that he's simply affirming what Plato affirmed because you do get this very stark division in the Republic between universal reality and these particulars. But if you read some of Plato's other dialogues, I think you get a more nuanced picture of the question because here Plato acknowledges that while the forms exist, our access to the forms, our understanding of them is always going to be mediated through sensuous particulars. You have no way of understanding any of these consequences except through your actual life circumstances, the things you encounter. And so when you think about it that way, Plato seems very open to the idea that someone with different life experiences is going to have different insights. So gender is going to matter. Ethnicity is going to matter. Sexuality class, anything you can name. He's open to the idea that a diversity of perspective is going to give you a diversity of insight into these forms that can never be accessed outside of life experience. But on the other hand, because Republic doesn't really deal with that, because Republic focuses on the idea of the forms as perfect, unchanging, and universal, it can be opening to this sort of flattening reading this sort of reading that ignores nuance, ignores the importance of life experience that provides a justification for this very reactionary attitude, this universalizing voice that we hear sometimes in the people who critique so-called identity politics. So let's plug back into the text, sort of where we left off, which is with the, the guardian class, and um, who, who they are, what they represent, why they're going to help us think about justice, so-called writ large, and why they're so essential for this text's seemingly problematic critique of democracy as a political order. Excellent. Yeah, right as we finished, I think this was the point we reached as we finished our last discussion, is that in imagining this city and speech, Socrates had moved from an earlier idea, which to me sounded like the idea of a city where everyone cultivates the virtue of philosophy, to a city where philosophers are going to be in charge. He's describing a warrior elite similar to the warrior elite of Sparta, but one which also has some of the trainings, some of the virtues 
of philosophy as the Socratic project understands it. And this is one of the places where the text gets really tricky. This interpretation of the text as Socrates is talking about the guardian class, how they'll be educated, their role as the ruling elite of the city, because this is where many interpreters plausibly argue this text is not about politics at all. They will say it is purely ethical. And that's because, at the very least, it's half about ethics. Ethics is an important concern. Because of this univocity we just mentioned, because for Plato there's a consistent meaning between a just or righteous person and a just or righteous city, everything you say about the city applies to the personality and vice versa. Yeah, in an isometric kind of way. That's a wonderful way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. So, at the very least, Socrates is simultaneously talking about how a city should be organized according to justice with the different classes given their appropriate responsibilities. And at the very least, he is also talking about how each human personality should be organized with different personalities or parts of the personality being given different roles. So some might argue that that's all it is. All the guardian class is is an analogy for how a certain part of our personality, the rational part, the philosophical part, should be in charge over the appetitive, over the emotional. But to reduce the text is <laughs> reductive. I mean, there's no, there's no reason to, there's no reason to eliminate the political dimensions of the text unless you have uh, uh, conspicuous commitments to a to a kind of individualist. Uh, methodology or or uh, or an anti-political uh, ontology that you're trying to you know smuggle into an ancient text. That's actually a really good point because certain 20th century readings that reduce this to the ethical are doing it for precisely that reason because they want to get I guess a sort of Jordan Peterson reading out of it that really all Socrates is doing here is telling Adamantus and Glaucon to clean their room. <laughs> that also though I think even more than maybe having that political agenda this is a common modern way of reading texts that either a text is historical with the primary meaning foremost and if it is allegorical that means there's a corresponding reduction in the primary meaning. It's one or the other. And this is the way Plato isn't guilty of the sins of modernity. He really is a both-and type of writer. This is a both-and narrative. Just as we look, and it's sometimes strange for me to imagine that Plato is contemporary with what we think of as some of the texts of the so-called Old Testament. But there, too, you see all the time there's discussion of things on a personal register and on a political register. That's just a very normal way of communicating these ideas. Well, what's so wild to me, and I know I'm jumping the gun, but what's so just bonkers to me is that on the one hand, Plato is a both-and kind of writer from the point of view of a liberal modernity. But on the other hand, as we're going to be discussing, no, he's not both-and. I mean, in many ways, he's deeply committed to either or. So, I mean, mm -hmm. we'll get there, but I'm just yes. flagging once again how difficult it is to really, <laughs> you know, when you, you can say one thing about the text in a way that feels true for the aspect of the text that you're talking about. In this case, you know, the, the, the ethical and the political. But in another part of the text, you, that doesn't hold. 
it's not univocally true. <laughs> well, then this gets us, though, to, I think, one of our great critiques of Plato. It's certainly one of mine. So I do think that this is an example of both and writing of both and discourse, because he certainly is talking about both the political and the personal. I wouldn't try to feel that there's the kind of choice that some interpreters, modern interpreters, really want to force on us. We do see it there in this notion of the guardian class. And for a moment, we're going to be talking about the political register and assume there really is a political register here. In his treatment of the guardian class, he really does seem to think there is an either-or choice involving Athenian democracy that implied in this. And I said it last time, one of the main arguments a republic can be summed up like this, that you need all kinds of complicated arts to run a city. There are different crafts you spend your whole life learning, and running the city is one of them. And the moment you say that, it implies certain things. Obviously, we would say not everybody can be a surgeon. That takes a particular set of talents and skills. Not everyone is going to be able to be an astronaut. Not everyone would want to be a professor of humanities. Not everyone can work on an oil rig. There are different talents. There are different skills. But the moment you say that about running the city, you're moving towards anti-democratic conclusions. You're saying not everybody can run the city either. Not everyone has the talents. Not everyone has the time or inclination. The moment you say that governing the city is like any other complicated career, any profession, you're going to say that it's going to be an elite of experts who are going to be entrusted with that. And that idea that you must entrust political power to this elite caste with this special training, with special talents, you're in conflict not just with Athenian democracy, but any other political system. And that's a real sleight of hand, because I think what one thing that we would affirm in this move is, is he goes out of his way, the text goes out of its way, to suggest that, on the one hand, running the city, governance, um, is like any other specialization. On the other hand, he goes out of his way to suggest that, no, there's a kind of meta-quality that isn't immediately... It's sort of involved with everything, right? It's involved with shipbuilding. It's involved mm -hmm. with going to war. It's involved with... Um, negotiating contracts, but the, the specific spec specialty of building a ship is not the same thing as the specialty of the one who governs or the one who is concerned with justice. So suggesting that there's a kind of meta-mediation or a meta-governance a meta that kind of hovers over and participates in all these sundry particular you know, preoccupations and professions is not a bad insight, right? That's that's a profound insight. Where he gets himself into trouble and becomes radically anti-democratic is with his univocal need to hyper-specialize such that only one class can participate in that meta-governance, whereas one could one could refuse <laughs> that univocal move and say, well, no, there's all kinds of ways. I mean, there's not even such thing as one democracy. There's multiple kinds of democracy. So there's all kinds of ways of expanding and organizing participation that involve 
various interdependent humans and beings in this meta project of governance. Yeah, and that's such a wonderful critique of that. I almost feel embarrassed expressing what I would think Plato's argument is. There's another dialogue where Socrates quips that democracy is like if you were sick and instead of going to a doctor, you just pulled your neighbors on how you should be helped. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a very facile argument. It's very easy to make because it's easy to point to any actual government that isn't completely given over to the experts and point out its flaws. So I know one thing we didn't mention about the background to Plato's time last time was the Peloponnesian War. And it's worth mentioning now that sort of one reason Plato is, I, I imagine, smugly thinking, I told you so, to the defenders of Athenian democracy, is they've had this great foreign policy blunder. This long, utterly ruinous war has happened, and it's going on during the time we're imagining Republic taking place. It's during the lifetime of Socrates. This long, ruinous war that inarguably was sort of led, it was a war of choice on the part of the leaders of Athens' democratic state. So Plato is just assuming, I feel, the whole while that, well, obviously we can see how bad it is when we don't listen to the experts. Yeah, we all know it's over. We all know that that this, this went poorly. We saw how badly it went. And so I, I always imagine that today he would find it just as easy, you know, to point to American democratic governments to the year 2020 and to imagine the COVID crisis and the public health experts like Fauci get up and say this or that. And then the representative of the people gets up and suggests injecting bleach into your arm. I can see how <laughs> Plato would just say, there's your choice, right? You can listen to the people who know what they're doing, or you can listen to whoever people elect. And why would you want to choose one over the other. It's very facile, but you can see how it can seem effective. Per persuasive, yes, from within that framework. Well, because I think what you're also getting at, though, Scott, is that you don't believe power is zero-sum, and I think Plato does. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And that's central to his understanding of... Uh, of what we're calling his univocal metaphysic. Well, right. There's places all the time. In many ways, it's odd because even though Plato, I think, understands more than some modern economic thinkers that physical stuff is not zero sum. We can expand the productivity of our society in all kinds of ways. He seems to be attached to the idea that the intangible and invisible is zero sum. We hear multiple times in this text, Socrates will say that desire is zero-sum. He says, if you try to want two different things, it'll be like a stream that's split in half, and each half of the stream runs with half the force. So desire is zero-sum, and also in the same way, so is political power, so is having say in the state. I think one of my biggest critiques of Plato is that he really does believe that the more you empower A, the more you disempower B. And then if you bring C into any system of government, then A and B correspondingly lose power. What I would say, and I know this sounds harsh, is this is the exact reasoning that someone like Tucker Carlson uses on his show when he talks about immigration. He says every time an immigrant comes to America, there is a new voter. Well, that diminishes the power of the other voters. And 
the harshest thing I think I can say about Plato is I don't see why he would disagree. He might argue in practice that new voters, it's good to bring them in because the old voters were bad and maybe the new voters make better decisions. But he wouldn't disagree with the logic that when you bring in new voters, you disempower the old ones. It seems like the kind of reactionary reasoning that would say, well, if you let women vote, that takes away the votes from men who had the vote before and so on. So before we get into, I think, the the middle of the text that I really want us to sink our teeth into today, I'd like us to circle back to something that we've brought up several times, but put a finer point on it and be a little bit more analytical and critical about is the peculiar and sometimes funny and sometimes horrifying ways that this text takes up lying. Lying as something that is immoral and unjust and bad, (laughs) and at the opposite extreme, necessary and justifiable and good. (laughs) So how how would you describe the way that Plato's Republic figures lying in its extremes. Yeah, the confusing thing is that throughout Socrates says truth is important, philosophers love truth, the members of the guardian class are devoted to truth, his critique of poetry that we'll talk about more soon, I'm sure, is all about how poetry is untrue, it is false, and yet we heard early on he said there are times when it's necessary not to tell people the truth, And then his discussion of the guardian class, its education, its creation, its justification, he endorses all kinds of lying. Ridiculous lies. (laughs) Right. So one of the most ridiculous lies is a lie that is meant to justify the construction of this new elite order. How would you describe this, the myth of the metals, the myth of the metallic origins of the classes? Yeah, this is the thing that is specifically called the noble lie, even though there are certainly other lies that are told to the people of the fictional city. And I can imagine that there's a bit of a play on words here because it's also a lie that justifies the idea of having a nobility, of having an aristocracy. Because what Socrates says is that, right, you have different classes with different responsibilities and some have no responsibility of ruling, You'll justify by having the poets of the city, and he's already said that they won't have any poets elsewhere. (laughs) So here the poets are back in. The poets of the city will tell this story of how at the beginning of time the gods made some people out of gold, some out of silver, some bronze and iron, and that just justifies their different social roles. To me, it almost seems like 19th century racism. The idea that people are just made out of different stuff. But the beautiful thing, the really delightful little flourish Socrates puts on it, this sort of grim platonic irony, is how they're going to explain, they're going to have to explain that this ridiculous lie they told to people, obviously, it doesn't really work because they know it's not true. So yes, you're going to say that the elite are just better. They're made of better stuff than regular people. But you'll also have to explain that sometimes golden parents have an iron child and sometimes iron parents have a golden child. Because obviously none of it's true. Good people can be born in any social class. And so you'll have to adapt your lie for the obvious reality that it's obscuring. So this is the so-called noble lie 
on the face of it, right? And even the, the face is two face, three face, four face. I mean, it's it's all kinds of wildness. But we we can go further and think about what are the what are the presuppositions that even make this noble lie and its paradoxes and its its laughability and its scariness possible. And I would say that there is a kind of deep, deep presupposition on the part of this text that social orders, kinship relations, political institutions are radically, not just contingent, but arbitrary, that they can be dissolved into atomized individuals, not in a kind of Lockean modern sense or a Rousseauian sense, but in a platonic sense, dissolved into individuals. And then you can, as a eugenics project, you can radically craft any number of wildly logically possible orders by totally ignoring you know, anything from like biological parentage to, you know, the institutions of society to the the various patterns of wealth accumulation, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so what I would want to say is, yes, you know, <laughs> critique, critique naturalized orders of injustice, critique naturalized orders of seeming necessity, right? And I think in that way, we're on the same page with Plato's Republic. I think where we're not on the same page is we don't think that any social order can just, you can snap a finger and just dissolve all its ties as a thought experiment and say, hey, you know, let's rearrange all of these atoms in an entirely random new order that kind of makes us laugh and horrifies us at the same time. Which is to say that there are forms of interdependency that, yes, can be changed, yes, are always being shaped, yes, that are always being contested, but these forms of interdependency are interlocked, and you can't, you can't just pull everything apart like it's a bunch of atoms in a test tube. Well, I like that you qualify that by saying, even as a thought experiment, because Plato would surely protest, as Socrates does over and over again, that None of this necessarily has to exist in reality for us to have the ideas that we're just thinking in terms of ideals. But yes, even as a thought experiment, you would assert that it is not so easy to do what he does. And all of the irony and all the mm. apophatic wrestling that we have, and you know, are we supposed to be pointing out the hypocrisy? Are we supposed? Yes, we are. Are we supposed to be kind of persuaded that the noble lie is a good idea? Yes, we are. Are we supposed to be simultaneously horrified by the fact that we're being persuaded? Yes, we are. Right. But all of this turns on this presupposition that one can think about social order in this way in the very first place. Right, and though these aren't strictly called the noble lie, I can think of two other ideas of both what would seem like ridiculous social experiments, but also self-conscious lies. They have the idea that they're going to practice eugenics by deciding who reproduces with whom. But rather than just saying, we think it's a good idea for these people to have children, 
Socrates says they'll pretend that it was the gods. They'll have lots that were cast and they'll fix the lots so it'll come out the way they want. But because people will think it is chance or fate, they'll think of it differently. They'll think of it as something divinely sanctioned rather than a human expedient. And he talks about an idea that I know would probably horrify the ancient Athenians almost as much as it would horrify modern day Americans, which is the idea that at birth, some children will just be killed. Some babies, if they're seen to be physically or mentally less able, they're not up to the challenge of living in the ideal city, they'll just take them and kill them. And now while this was done in Sparta, this was an actual practice, the Athenians didn't do this. They would be horrified by this, and I think they'd be further horrified, Plato knows this, by Socrates quipping how, of course, they won't tell people they're doing this. They won't say they're doing this horrible thing to these little children. They'll just say they took them to a nice farm in upstate New York or something like that. <laughs> and this is how Plato's text can manage to be seemingly wildly open and social constructionist in its sense of possibility, but also reactionary. And he can have these kind of quips that we can laugh at about having, you know, women practicing, you know, there's a there's a, a move to gender equality in the guardian class and having women practicing their physical routines, physical exercises in the nude in the along, you know, alongside the practice of Athenian elite, uh, right, training. And we're supposed to feel horrified by that and laugh at that, right? But that's, that's how the text, I think, cinches its reactionary character in in these moments there's a case where there's no lying involved but just as much i always think that as much as the ancient athenians would share our horror at the idea of the murder of newborn infants they'd be horrified in a way we can't understand by the idea of gender equality athens was segregated in a way that makes modern day saudi arabia look enlightened i mean that's not even hyperbole this was ridiculous the way athenian women were deprived of rights and yet Socrates makes a simple, very simple, really common sense case that women can be guardians, part of the elite. He just says, well, you know, with sheepdogs, would you say that because the female dogs give birth to puppies, they don't herd sheep? Well, of course not. So why on earth, other than maybe when someone's in the middle of childbirth, should a woman not be able to participate in guardianship? Simple, sensible. But then he makes this ridiculous quip about how hard it is going to be to see older women exercising naked, you know, this sort of misogynistic joke there thrown in to kind of wink to his Athenian audience that he also thinks this is unthinkable, even as he's explained why it's completely reasonable. So there's this... I think part of the univocal metaphysics here, this, this, this kind of converges with, which we're going to see coming back uh, later in the text, is this sense of terror, either implicit in the relationship with the reader or explicit in the text, about what we might call you know, a slippery slope to dissolution. Mm. And I think these examples are just one of the ways in which the reader is kind of inculcated in uh, kind of feeling the feelings that, oh my goodness, how far do we go? How far do we dissolve ourselves into, into these atoms that could be radically arranged in any way possible? And this is one way Plato is authentically an ancient 
thinker in a way that is not a good way. Often we're critical of modernity when we talk about Plato anticipating modernity, we're critiquing him. But he does seem to take for granted the ancient idea that change is never good. The idea of all change as deterioration from original perfection. Already in talking about gold, silver, bronze, and iron, he's evoked the story of Herodotus, the myth of the four ages of man, which is the Greek version of the fall narrative that we get in the book of Genesis. This idea of a slide, of a deterioration, is already there, and it's only going to get worse as we get towards the end. Right, and the, the forms are precisely unchanging. That's, that's extremely important. They're eternal. Change is always bad. I'm a Latin specialist, and one of the funniest things, one of the places where you really learn how culture affects language is you learn that the phrase new things in Latin, noi race, is always negative. Noi race is one of the nastiest, most terrible things you can say. New affairs, a new order of things. It is never used in a positive sense, and it's not in the nature of the words. It's just the way the ancient Romans, the ancient Hebrews, or the ancient Greeks think about change. So let's pivot to what are some of the, the most discussed figures um, at the center of this text, Plato's Republic. It's a trio of famous figures, and they're all analogies. The first one is the analogy of the sun. The second one is called the analogy of the line or the divided line. And the third is called the analogy of the cave, which is much more of a story. So it ends up getting called the allegory of the cave. And what we're going to find is that each one sort of builds on the last one, such that by the time you get to the cave, the cave is sort of a, a narrative extrapolation of the principles that are laid out in the first two. So let's start with the sun. And we should say that these analogies get to the heart of the kind of metaphysical meaning making that's going on in this text and about this question of mediation. And each one, each one of these figures is going to do something slightly different. And it's going to have sort of more possibilities and less possibilities or, or possibilities and limits that we want to be attending to. So let's start with the analogy of the sun. How would you describe the analogy of the sun? Why does it come up? What is it? How does Socrates introduce it? Well, what's beautiful about this is that Socrates is now teasing at an idea I think is implicit in the whole Platonic project, because there is this emphasis always on reducing the many and the variable to one. And this is never more intriguing than with the word the good, with the idea of goodness. The word good is used in so many ways, so many variable ways. And Aristotle, a generation later, will just embrace the variability, the multidimensionality of this word good. But the Platonic impulse is to reduce that variability to figure out what it is. So what is the good? And it obviously seems like a more challenging problem than what is justice even, let alone what is red. And rather than just accepting that you can't solve it, Socrates, well, acknowledging that it's difficult, Socrates tells his students they want to know, they can sense that his thought is tending this way, 
He can't tell them what it is, but he can tell what its products are. He can provide an analogy that can let us get a sense of what the good relates to. And his analogy is light. His analogy is the sun. So he says, in the visible world, you've got the eye that sees and you've got the thing that is seen, but none of that is any good without the third term, without the sun that provides the light that makes seeing possible, he says. And if you bear that analogy in mind, you can at least get a sense of what the good must be like, because there's a relationship between seeing and the thing seen and the light that makes seeing possible. Well, the good is not the mind that understands, nor the thing that is understood by the mind, but it is whatever makes the understanding possible. It is the third term of the mental world, just as the sun is the third term of the visual world. The good is in some way whatever mediates this world of the mind that Plato has already elevated in this way. And I know, Scott, you can point out that there are still problems lurking here, but this is the second place, other than the definition of justice, where I see something valuable, I see something redeemable in Plato, because it's so not modern. It's so different from so many of the modern thinkers. And here I speak from more authority as a student of Renaissance history. There is a fascination in the Renaissance with getting past mediation. There's a fascination with a direct, immediate connection. Whereas here, Plato is embracing the idea of mediation, not only as good, but the good. The good higher than which there is no other. So if I were ever to want to just briefly say why Plato is not a modern thinker, I'd say that. It's not just that he loves mediation. Mediation is the very good itself for him. And it plays out in an even more meta way because he says it's a likeness, it's a simile, it's an analogy. Mm-hmm. It's it, this is, and so this is not. He's not appealing to the physics of light, right? He's like a modern would. It's not the materiality of light as matter and energy, right, or as photon. It's it's the we could say it's the topological thirdness the topological structure which is everywhere which you need to mediate these kinds of relations yeah and for this reason we would you know i think affirm it at least on these terms and then you know the text goes out of its way and we said we weren't going to talk about money too much but the text goes out of its way to suggest that the good in an analogy with the sun and its light that makes everything visible, it is akin to a boundless treasury, right? So the text actually appeals to appeals to the a, a public monetary instrument in order to further this analogy and to further um, it's an analogy upon an analogy in order for us to understand what the good is, and in this way. At this moment in the text, we're being told it's not finite. And, uh, you know, I think from our perspective, we would say, and hence it wouldn't be zero sum. (laughs) Yeah, I would just interject here briefly to say exactly that he may have said other things like will is finite, political power is finite. In his understanding of the sun's light, this is not a finite thing in the sense that modern physics would make it. So neither is mediation. Yeah, and that, and then, and then he connects that to, to money, to a, to an, mm-hmm. to a boundless treasury, which is fascinating, right? And so, 
from here, <laughs> when we are unfolding this discussion of the good um, and moving to the analogy of the divided line, the, <laughs> the zero-sum univocal thinking just comes roaring back in. Now, we can say there's already a little bit of univocal sense of either or or empty or full, you know, kind of latent in the analogy of the sun that, you know, the, the, the lesser things, the things you're merely seeing are not, that not as important as sunlight, right? So we might note that it's already starting to peak out in the analogy of the sun, even if I think overall the analogy of the sun is pretty wonderful and worth affirming. And also the analogy of the sun baked into its structure is the superiority of the world of the mind versus the physical world. Right. That hierarchy, that insistence on hierarchy. Right, and a hierarchy that is zero sum. So let's talk about the analogy of the divided line and how, how this shifts things. How would you introduce our listeners to the analogy of the divided line. Now, it's easy to get baffled trying to imagine this line because it is both divided and subdivided. There are three parts of the line of unequal length, and each of those parts is itself subdivided according to the same ratios by which the line is divided. But what's the purpose of the line yes. before we even get to the divisions? Yes, the purpose. In fact, I'm never going to worry too much about the division. I'm one of these people that Plato would despise because geometry is such a challenge to them. To me, what is important, what I take away from it, is that this is an extension of Plato looking for justice. And here I would say on that micro level, because he said that if we want to talk about justice in society, it's the right ordering of society. On the personal level, it's the right ordering of the individual that has more than one dimension, that plays out in more than one register. Part of organizing the person is organizing your personality, making sure your rational part is above your emotional or your repetitive part. But there's also a hierarchy, a just ordering, a proper ordering of the faculties of the mind, of the way we make sense of the world. So the point of this, the point of this division and subdivision of this line is to talk about how there is one truly superior intellectual way of understanding things. There's a middle level, which has to do more with mathematics and geometry. And then there's the lowest level, which is the level of sense perception. So it's about creating a hierarchy of the different intellectual faculties and placing them in a very linear fashion. Yeah, linear and zero sum. And I think I want to take a moment to really emphasize, really highlight the way that the figure of the divided line can be read as emblematic for the way you could say the, the topology of Plato's thought very often. That for all of its problems and paradoxes and you know, hysterical and horrifying riddles and contradictions and hypocrisies, so much of those problems and hypocrisies stem from a construction of problems as a, a linear set of hierarchical oppositions, which are either or. Oh, you're right. You see this, and this is where I cheat and go against the rule of some of the ancient Neoplatonists and appeal to other texts. 
but Plato loves these types of relationships, playing with them. So in the Phaedo, you have what's almost the reductio ad absurdum of this thinking, where first Socrates is talking about hotter and colder, bigger and smaller, and then moves to the idea of being aliver and deader to demonstrate the immortality of the soul. But even though the last example to us, perhaps to Plato, seems absurd, the other two, large and small, hot and cold, are very good examples of relationships where it is linear. Something is not both hot and cold. It's not both large and small. You just move up and down on that one-dimensional axis. And later on, as we get into Plato's topology of government, probably in our next recording, we'll see that again, a one-dimensional axis where you can slide up and down on the line but there's no richness, no complexity, and no combining of contradictory qualities. So when you flatten, <laughs> flatten the hierarchy. More than flatten. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you reduce it to this narrow, narrow, narrow set of possibilities where you can't, you cannot have multiplicity, right? You have to choose one or the other. You end up with, you know, what today we call, you know, taxpayer metaphysics. Like, you know, something has to pay for something. Something has to pay for another thing. Yeah, this is why I honestly feel sometimes that at least the basic underlying assumption, even if Plato is not a neoliberal, I can see him agreeing with that basic idea that you have to choose, that life is full of hard choices. So on an emotional, on an aesthetic level, he might agree with the neoliberal claim that we've got to make tough choices. We either have to sacrifice this or that. That seems to be the way he thinks. I mean, we see it just in the basic, in the subtext of the dialogue with the figure of Socrates. You're the one who noted, Scott, how much, even within Republic, the fact that Socrates is poor, all of his young disciples are wealthy, how important that is. And we hear in other works, Socrates is poor because he chose the life of the mind. He's poor because he chose the life of the mind. And that's an example of the hard choices life forces on you in a very real, very practical way. Indeed, indeed. So let's move to the most elaborate of the analogies, the analogy or allegory of the cave. So this brings us back to the guardians, right? So he's really preoccupied with the question of how do you make guardians? How do you make guardians as persons? How do you make them as wisdom-loving, good-oriented elites? The Greek word for this project is paideia, right? This is the, mm-hmm. the education, the project of education, as it was known. But this is a very different kind of paideia. He's trying to rewrite the curriculum, rewrite how paideia works. And he has all kinds of things to say, Socrates, you know, in the text about the paideia of the guardians. But in order to orient his audience and us, his readers, to this process, he gives us an analogy. And he says it's as if, it's like this, <laughs> this particular analogy of the cave. So let's actually get into the, the text itself. This is, this is at the top of book seven. And I'm, I'm going to start reading. Next, I said, compare the effect of education and the lack of it on our nature to an experience like this. Imagine human beings living in an underground cave-like dwelling 
with an entrance a long way up, which is both open to the light and as wide as the cave itself. They've been there since childhood, fixed in the same place, with their necks and legs fettered, able to see only in front of them because their bonds prevent them from being able to turn their heads around. Light is provided by a fire, burning far above and behind them. Also behind them, but on higher ground, there is a path stretching between them and the fire. Imagine that along this path, a narrow wall has been built, like the screen in front of puppeteers, above which they show their puppets. His interlocutor says, I'm imagining it. Then also imagine that there are people along the wall carrying all kinds of artifacts that project above it, statues of people and other animals made out of stone, wood, and every material. And as you'd expect, some of the carriers are talking and some are silent. It's a strange image you are describing and strange prisoners. They're like us. Do you suppose, first of all, that these prisoners see anything of themselves and one another besides the shadows that the fire casts on the wall in front of them? How could they, if they have to keep their heads motionless throughout life? What about the things being carried along the wall? Isn't the same true of them? Of course. And if they could talk to one another, don't you think they'd suppose that the names they used applied to the things they see passing before them? Well, they'd have to. And what if their prison also had an echo from the wall facing them? Don't you think they'd believe that the shadows passing in front of them were talking whenever one of the carriers passing along the wall was doing so? I certainly do. Then the prisoners would in every way believe that the truth is nothing other than the shadows of those artifacts. So I'm going to stop there. It keeps going, and it kind of keeps going and keeps going, and it doesn't, it doesn't actually have a clean ending, but maybe we can unpack what's going on at the beginning, what it's setting up, what its presumptions are before we head on later into the, um, the allegory of the cave. What would you say? What would you want someone to know about the allegory of the cave who is coming to it for the first time? I would say that it's a lovely summary of at least one aspect of the theory of the forms. The idea that there are these forms that are the underlying reality, that in some sense they are more real than the world of sensuous particulars. You talk about the dialogue's interest in naming. What can be better than this analogy of naming the shadow when really the name belongs to the thing that cast the shadow. So it's a wonderful way to just set out this concept. So it's actually bringing together, I mean, the sun is gonna show up, you know, in a few moments, you know, <laughs> a few beats later, but it's a way of bringing the sun analogy and the line analogy with the sort of abundant treasury of, you know, good and rich, you know, wisdom, richness of wisdom, that we have in the sun that gets placed outside of the cave together with the very narrow zero sum understanding of the divided line and and our access to knowledge and the very degraded sense of immediate sensuous experience compared to 
more and more kind of dematerialized uh, intellectual approaches to the good. Yeah, you're right. I suppose that what I really said only applied to the first part, that you have the things and their shadows, so those are the forms versus how they manifest, but then you do get this moment where eventually someone gets freed. Someone gets freed, one of the prisoners in the cave is able to leave the cave, and that's when the sun comes into it. And he's at first like dazzled by the sun, so dazzled by it he can barely look around, slowly begins to see things in the real world, and even have to adjust to that, seeing real things and not the shadows. And eventually he gains the ability to stare right at the sun itself. So you're right that Plato has very cleverly deployed the sun. Now it's serving a slightly different analogical function here. Yeah, the journey of the person who is basically unshackled and is being dragged up the cave into the you know into the to supposedly the real world where there's real light not this fake degraded light with the even more fake degraded uh shadows this journey is a kind of narrativization of the divided line it creates a a, a mise-en-scene and a narrative unfolding to show us well that the function of education or the effect of edu the education on the individual soul is to essentially move up the line and moving up the line means moving up the cave to the opening mm -hmm. to the world from the shadows to the things to the sun itself three kinds of understanding and yes the importance of threeness is another another recurring element in ancient mediterranean thought and we've gone from thirdness being with the analogy of the sun this seeming potentially non-zero-sum abundance uh, for all to becoming a narrow individualistic, well, but it's not just individualistic because you need a teacher, right? So a teacher comes down and unshackles the prisoner. And the teacher, and essentially this is an analogy for the process of dialogue or what would be called dialectic. So through dialogue, through the, the pedagogy of dialogical paideia, this dyad, this older teacher and younger student can move up the line or move up the cave in order to get closer and closer to the truth, leaving everyone else in their, their delusions, their injustices, and their being diametrically opposed in this topology from the good and from the true and from wisdom. They leave them for a while, but then the other part, and this is where I almost think the story of the cave, it begins to be a metaphor for something else. You've had the metaphor already of the different kinds of understanding, but then when the people who have seen the sun come back down into the cave and try to share what they've learned with the people down in the darkness, now what we're really talking about are the problems of how philosophers can interface with government. How can philosophers rule once you've started to see things differently, you think differently from normal people, how do you still interact with them and share some of your insights? Right, so what happens as we're nearing the end of the allegory of the cave is that the single, now enlightened philosopher who loves the good and loves wisdom for their own sake in and of themselves, 
comes back down into the cave and wants to, you know, spread the gospel, spread the good word, let people be free. And the um, in the telling of Socrates, they don't want that. They regard th- these alternatives as being lies, as being scary, and they reject them. And, you know, this ends with Socrates saying, don't you suppose that this group of cave dwellers would essentially have the, the newly minted philosopher put to death? And you cannot read this text without thinking of the death of Socrates. There are many other places. There are smaller versions of this. Socrates tells a story about a ship where everybody turns against the only person who's qualified to navigate it, that they'd rather just let the person pilot the ship who makes the biggest promises to everybody else on the ship in one way or another. We're pushing back again to, I think the idea has been there since the start of the discussion of the Guardians. It's articulated at about this point where Socrates just says, you're never going to have a really good society until philosophers are kings, until we find a way to push past the fact that people won't listen to the philosophers. They're not going to listen to the person who's been up to see the sun. We just have to find a way to install them in power so people have to listen to them, whether they agree with them or not. So in addition to criticizing the elitism, the univocal hierarchy, the zero-sum metaphysics of of trade-off, and the seemingly kind of narrow sociality of the education of the Guardian, I want to highlight two different ways that we might come back and critically reread this scene. One is the conventional, I think, modern European way uh, that in many ways, modern European philosophy, I mean, it, it, you know, it arises in response to all kinds of <laughs> intellectual arguments and formations. But one of those kind of vectors takes a certain reading of platonic metaphysics that get emblematized in the, in the allegory of the cave and reject it. And the way that I often refer to this uh, with my students is I call it the two-scene model of metaphysics. So you have the, the fallen bad scene, which is sensuous immediacy in this kind of theater of shadows. And then the good is somewhere else. Justice is somewhere else. What's real is somewhere else. What matters is somewhere else. And the idea is to flee from your sensuous existence with people around you in order to get somewhere better. Now, I think in a certain way, modern philosophers are, are correct to reject this two-scene model. But what they do is they get rid of this quintessential problem of platonic metaphysics, which is how do you mediate from the macro to the micro and back again, right? They get rid of that question Mm -hmm. and instead approach the problem imminently. Probably most extreme and well-known philosopher who pushes against this, this particular reading of the allegory of the cave would be Friedrich Nietzsche, right? And so he would tell us, he would implore us, he would demand, he would shake us and tell us there is no elsewhere, there is no beyond, there is no meta, All there is is the vitality 
of the sensuous here and now and the passion of that now. And the best that you can do is to amplify that vitality, which might mean getting angry and upset one second and being ecstatically happy the next second in this kind of Dionysian celebration of creative poetics, right? Now, we would want to say you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The problem of the meta, the problem of the macro and the micro, maybe we might even say the problem of the mezzo, right? The problem of mediating the whole. The fact that no reality is not reducible to what's immediately in front of you is still a worthy one. And in fact, we can't really approach the question of justice or truth or however we want to put it. We can't get where we want to go without posing these questions. The key then would be to critique this two-scene model for its univocity, its zero-sum mm -hmm. nature, and also I would say its strange anti-sociality. And it's really, really peculiar, and there's a tension in the text. On the one hand, he's giving us this model of a of a you know a social spectacle film theorists thousands of years later have noted that you know he kind of invents a cinema before the cinema um it's a it's a space of convening of mediation of shadow play of creativity and it's social right but sociality here is rendered flatly univocally as a, a prison so that's a kind of deeply antisocial understanding of education. And then the very process of education has to be this immediate one-on-one -on -one dialectic or one-on-one -on -one dialogue that's not taking place in an institution like Plato's own academy, but is rather this, you know, itinerant <laughs> philosopher who's coming in and dragging just one you know, away, and then the newly minted philosopher comes back down alone, right? They don't come down with a podcast. They don't come down with a school. They don't come down with institutions or organizations. They just are like, yeah, you know, I'm this lonely guy. What do you think? Right? So, well, but to be fair, that's part of the problem that's identified. Because he doesn't come down with institutions or organizations, the person who's seen the light isn't listened to creating institutions, creating a new social order, that's part of the answer to the problem that's posed? It's part of the answer to the problem that's posed, but the problem is the extreme, the extreme assumptions that go into the imagining of the problem in the first place. So because we can only imagine this one-on-one -on -one process that's why we have to have institutions when in fact that's never how the education of the of anybody works nobody mm. learns just from one person dragging them away from everyone else that just it doesn't work that way the thought experiment presumes this extremity that is supposed to be how education works and i agree with you that part of this is supposed to get the reader to learn why we need institutions so we don't keep murdering Socrates. I get that. And I, you know, to a certain extent, I, I would agree with that. Nevertheless, as a model of sociality, as a model of education, mm -hmm. and that's what he poses it as. And he says, this is, this is what society is like, and this is, this is what education is like. Or even worse, he seems to be not even speaking in a social register. 
He seems to be saying this is the human condition in some sort of stripping away, universalizing sense, because the platonic impulse, even though perhaps he, he's not going to, like Locke or Rousseau, explicitly think about pre-social human beings, there's going to be impulse to just talk about this is humanity, full stop. Right. You know, we can read against <laughs> this by sort of embracing what Nietzsche likes, which is the shadows on the wall are cool. The shadows on the wall are, they, they inflame our passions and they, mm -hmm. they make, they give us vitality and et cetera, et cetera. We can, we can say that that's not a fallen place, but we can also say it's a social place. It's a collective convening. It's a, an institution of mediation. And yes, it is not the only thing that's real, right? Not everything that's real is right in front of you. And we can say, yes, you can organize this space in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we were discussing another platonic dialogue, if we were doing symposium, that would be the place where we could find more of a redeeming reading of Plato. But I would agree that Republic over and over, the language is one of such stark division. The Guardian, the philosopher, will care about this and not that. And so he creates that false choice where then Nietzsche can choose one side or many of the Renaissance Neoplatonists choose the other. Some of the great Renaissance Neoplatonists I've studied would take that as a sanction for something like the Christian idea of monasticism, the aesthetic life. John Collett, the English Neoplatonist, would go wearing black all the time as sort of, sort of to manifest his sense that the whole world, the fallenness, the evil of the whole visible material world, and he would get that from Plato from simply flipping Nietzsche's reading on its head and rejecting the very thing that Nietzsche embraces. So I, I think one of the things I'm really um, pleased about our uh, analysis in this second part of our series is that we're really getting at really before we get to, to very specific interpretations of how money is cropping up in the text and what it means and how translators are dealing with it and um, and maybe the, the some of the problems uh, that we're going to be discovering next time and how it's related to Plato's understanding of different forms of government even before we get to money right we're really taking on the text for the way it poses metaphysical problems and metaphysical problems of mediation and the way that A, even though the text is again and again committed to this univocal zero-sum metaphysics, it doesn't get articulated in univocal ways. It's iterated out in ways that have all kinds of tensions that include possibilities like the, the analogy of the sun, which is to say that you know money, when we get to money, money is never just money. Right? It's always, how is it being understood and mediated in a much broader context, which is always cosmological, metaphysical, theological, you know, you know, use the term of art you'd like to use that fits your historical context. Yeah, what I'm looking forward to in our next and final part of our discussion as we finish up this one. We promise. Yes, is not only really getting into the philology, the, the language of money, but that ties in so beautifully with some of the very interesting empirical observations Plato makes about different forms of government in his typology, 
And as well, we still have yet to really discuss, if we talk about mediation, his treatment of poetry, his treatment of imitation, the moment when the dialogue turns inward on itself and discusses the conditions of its own creation. So we have many good things to look forward to. Right. Yeah. So I think this is a great place to end. Thanks for joining us. If you're liking what you're hearing, please support us uh, on our Patreon account. You can find the link in the, the show notes. Brendan, thanks so much for another amazing discussion. I'm so looking forward to our next one. Thanks, Scott. Me too. Bye for now. Bye for now.